You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Yeah, hi everybody and welcome. It's so great to be here. Man, I love Sundays so much. It's so great to be with all of you, seeing so many faces come back and be here in this place. So what an honor to be with you. As always, if you're watching in online or if this is your first time here, uh, we sure hope it's not your last. Uh, But let's continue on in our series. I'm super excited about this. We've been looking at, we're going to look at for the month of November. It's called For Such a Time as This. We'll get into our scripture reading. I'm going to warn you, it's a little bit long, so hang in there with me. But it's from Esther chapter 2. You can follow along on the screen or in your Bible. Here we go. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. And let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. Well, this advice appealed to the king. And he followed it. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women. Six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfume and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shaashgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women. And she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead 
of Vashti. That is the lengthy reading of God's word and all God's people said, I hope, amen. Yeah, and again, if you're new, you're like, man, what am I saying amen to? Well, we're taking a look today at episode two, if you will, of For Such a Time as This. We're looking at the book of Esther uh, in her, uh, she's, in a way, she's the star of the Hebrew scriptures because her name means star, and we're looking at her story. And Esther's story is amazing, and as a matter of fact, if you were, la- if you're here last week, you know, her story raises and tries to answer all kinds of questions, such as, like we saw last week, what do we do when God seems silent? Or how does God work with us when all seems lost in our lives, that our people, or our nation? How do we follow God in a morally ambiguous culture? And to answer that last question, final question, I want to look today at another character in the book of Esther. And it's a character that you might not have noticed, but there is a character here who has enormous influence over the whole story. It's a character who, who sort of overshadows everyone. It's a character who actually never speaks a word. And that character isn't a who, but a what? It's the palace of Xerxes. See, like, like all great stories, this great story has a great setting which, as we'll see again, it influences all the people there. Today we're going to look at the palace of Xerxes and to, and to answer, to try to answer the question, how do we follow God in morally ambiguous times, places, or situations? So to answer that question, I want to take a look at the palace and give you three thoughts about the palace I think we're supposed to see. Number one, I want to encourage you to recognize, first, the potential of the palace. Number two, encourage you to resist the pressure of the palace. And finally, to remember another person from another palace. And of course, we'll see who that is. So recognize, resist, remember all here from Esther 2. Let's begin here in number one and take a look at what it means to recognize the potential of the palace. Let's recap what we've seen so far in our story. In the book of Esther, we find, yeah, you may have picked up on this in the reading, find the Jewish people in exile still about 100 years after they were conquered by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. The Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem. They hauled off a lot of the Jews into captivity. And while the Jews were there in Babylon, the Persian Empire came through conquered the Babylonians, inherited the Jewish people, which sets the stage for the book of Esther. And last week we saw the whole story kicked off by the Persian king named Xerxes, who back in chapter 1, he threw a massive 180-day, like six-month party. It's a huge party, so the original Project X, so to speak, if you remember that really bad movie. And the king gets drunk. You say, Morgan... It was a 180-day party with an open bar. Somebody was bound to. Of course, you're right. That was a joke. It's not going to get any better. So you might as well laugh at the ones you get. I'm just kidding. All right. In his drunken stupor, he begins to brag about how beautiful his wife Vashti is. He calls her in to be eye candy in front of thousands of drunken men. And to his shock and surprise, she won't do it. Crazy, right? This causes so much political angst. He calls a whole cabinet meeting to discuss it. They depose her. It sets off an international beauty pageant, sort of a Persian idol kind of a thing. In order to find the next queen who will do what Xerxes says. And where does all of this happen? Come on, it's in 
the palace. Yeah, the palace. And now chapter 2 here. From the palace, the king's beauty scouts go out throughout Persia. They bring back a whole string of women to audition for the king's harem. And for the next year, you read, they were given beauty treatments, uh, whipped into the peak of physical condition to spend one night with the king. And everything in their lives now depended on how that one night went. Because, depending on how things went, one of four things would happen to a woman, a Persian concubine. Number one, they could be sent away to be a permanent, uncalled for concubine. Number two, they would be a sporadically called in concubine. Number three, they become one of two to three wives to produce an heir for the king. And number four, one, and I use this term very loosely, one lucky girl would become the queen. So the beauty scouts go out, the contest is on, and one of the women who's looking for that final rose on the Persian bachelor, right, is a young Jewish orphan girl named Esther. And she goes through all the treatments to spend one night with the king. And as the story goes, she pleases him so much that she, an orphan girl from an exiled Jewish family, becomes the queen of the Persian empire. Now, that's a remarkable story, isn't it? I think it is. But once more, where does all of this happen? In the palace, yeah. Where do these laws, edicts go out from? From where? The palace. Where do all the ideas that shape the Persian culture come from? Come on. The palace, right? And so we should acknowledge, because this is just part of the story, that it's really important, isn't it? Who's in the palace? Thank you. (laughs) It's really important. Who takes what spot? It's really important. Who's in the palace? Right about now you're saying, Morgan, yeah, it's super important. Who the king is, who the leader is, who's elected. Morgan, yeah, you're right. It's super important. Not only who lives in these centers of power, but who does what with what they're given. Morgan, you're saying it's important who's in the palace. And you're right. But I'm not talking about who you think I'm talking about. Because the king wasn't the only one in the palace, was he? No. One of the messages of Esther, and really the whole Bible is this, we tend to overestimate the influence of others. We tend to underestimate the influence God gives us where we are right now. Sure, the king's at the top, but come on, who else is there? Esther, she's got some influence too, right? King's advisors do, Haman in the next chapter, why? Because they're all in or around a palace. So what if I told you today there was a place in the world that had the 10th largest economy of any place in the entire world. And at the center of this enormous economic machine was a city deep in the heart of a place (laughs) that had one of the largest and most elite educational programs in the world. No, didn't even get a hook in there. All right. Whose motto is literally what starts here changes the world. A city which the cultural elite from around the globe, culture, technology, music, a city that had the center of political power, uh, that economic engine at its heart, a city that was listed consistently as the best place to live in the most powerful nation in the world. Would you say that a person who lived there could be in a kind of a palace. A person who lived there was also important, strategic, maybe influential in their own way. I think we could say that. I think we should say that. Oh, snap, you're saying. Is he talking about me? 
Years ago, when I first started out in ministry, I was working with college students exclusively. So I went to this like campus ministers conference. It had leaders, missionaries from around the country there. And there was this, this big time guy who was the keynote speaker of the whole deal. And he was super famous, a, a child, actually of uh, immigrants. And, and if I said his name, probably a lot of you would know who it was. Uh, but that night, I'll never forget what he talked about, how it seemed so strange to me. And in the end, how he was right. He began to talk about how much opportunity, how much privilege, how much access to resources that college students had and how college students in America owed something to the rest of the world. And I remember thinking, what are you talking about? College students owe something to the rest of the world? I mean, I just graduated a few years ago, dude, and listen, I know the only people that college students owe something to are the collections people in the admissions office across the street from the university. And I remember sitting there thinking a lot of stuff along those lines when the pastor began to offend me further, suggesting that not only did college students have this incredible wealth and privilege, but campus missionaries like me had even more. I remember thinking, of whom do you speak? I raised my entire salary. But he said this, Listen, the vast majority of the world does not have access to the food you do, a car to drive, won't ever go to a movie, have no hope for higher education whatsoever. A vast majority of the world are utterly impoverished. You, the students you lead, live in a place of incredible opportunity. He said, compared to them, you live in a palace. What are your students going to do for them? What are you going to do for them? And I asked in that moment what you may be asking me right now. Are you talking to me? Yes. Because most of us here, come on, you get my point. In the room or watching online, you live in Austin, Texas or around Austin. Compared to a lot of the world, it's a palace. So what are we going to do with that? How are we, how are you going to leverage whatever, whatever privilege you have for the benefit of those who don't? How are you going to leverage your wealth? Your health, your education, your skin color perhaps, citizenship. Most of us right now, I want to tell you, are esters compared to the rest of the world. More access to influence, resources, mobility, even in the middle of a pandemic. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? All right, here's what I'm not trying to do. I'm not trying to make you feel bad today about your ability or inability to handle anything in your life because life is tough right now. What I am trying to do is to remind you of what you do have and for you not to underestimate the influence you have right now. And here's why, here's why. It's because, it's always this way. It's because it's through average, ordinary people who understand the opportunity in front of them through whom God changes the world. Nehemiahs, Daniels, Esthers, sure, whoever the leader of a nation is has a lot of power and Xerxes has a lot here. But who in the book of Esther, in the end, has more? Esther, come on. Mordecai, the Jews in Susa. See, Esther shows us the people of God in and around the palace can have more moral influence if they'll choose to pick it up. So to follow God, follow God, close number one here, to follow God in morally ambiguous times. Esther, I think, calls us to recognize the potential of the palace. That even in the middle of a crisis, not to forget that he has put you and me in this church, in this place for such a time as this. And no matter what we have, no matter what we have or what happens, leverage what we have for others. That is Esther's mission 
and the church's mission if we'll pick it up. But, but that's number one, you got to recognize the potential. But number two, we'll forget that. We'll forget that truth if we don't now. And number two, if we don't also, at the same time, resist the pressure of the palace. All right, got to resist. So I'm going to pause here, pause here and ask the class a question. Class, so far, chapters one and two, what have we learned about Persian culture? Hmm? So far, I think we've learned that a man's value was based on his wealth and power, and a woman's value is based on her beauty and attractiveness. Aren't you glad times have fundamentally changed? Let me ask you, is our cultural system really fundamentally different than Persia's? Every human palace says to us, human palaces apart from the grace of God say this to you. How you perform, who you are on the outside matters more, more important than who you are on the inside. And Xerxes and his palace tell you that. Because there's nothing here about how Xerxes wants his queen to be really compassionate, care for others, intelligent, right, charming, or in any way contribute to the betterment of the kingdom. No, 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 it's show up. Look good. Get your spa treatment, right? Be good in bed. Rinse and repeat. And if you can't, now you're banished to the outskirts of opportunity and influence. Women, ever feel like all our culture cares about sometimes is how you look? Yeah. Welcome to Esther's life, Persia. No, our, our non-redeemed cultural palaces today, apart from the grace of God, they all send out the same stuff. Maybe the beauty treatments are a little different, so to speak. But the purpose is the same. To tell you, if you don't look like that, if your skin color doesn't look like that, if you don't think like that, you're nothing. See, there's pressure, right? To think, act, look certain ways, be a certain height, weight, appearance. I mean, that's, that's the pressure of the palace. So let's see, let's see how we're doing with it in our moment today because we are all affected to a great degree just by living in the empire, right? We're subjected to the same messages coming out from palaces. So let me ask you a few questions here. All right, gonna gently probe, all right. Do you value people more when they have more? As in like at work, or are you quicker to make friends with the people you perceive are on the up and up, thinking they can take you up with them? If so, that's, that's Xerxes' value system. You should let that go. At school, for all you students here in the room or online, students, uh, do you ignore the unpopular kids? Only seek to hang out with the cool kids, the cool guy, the cool girl. Be noticed by that group. Would you, would you never, ever sit or talk with a person like that? If so, that's Xerxes' value system. We should let that go. Do you relegate people? relationships to the outskirts of your personal kingdom. Maybe on social media. If they don't please you. If they perhaps voted for the other candidate. Do you know there are actually people in this country who root for politically disastrous things to happen so they can, in fact, raise money from it? I read, I read an article this week with a, with a fundraiser for one of the main political parties in the U.S. And in the article, this person admitted if our nation were at peace, if people were at peace, if there were respectful dialogue, he said, that is bad for business. He said, I have a vested interest in ongoing political rancor. Wow. He's admitting there's a pressure 
that's exerted on you and me to be angry all the time, outraged all the time. Why? It generates clicks. It generates fundraisers. And by the way, you can raise a lot of money through fear and anger. Outrage is an industry. Fear-mongering today is an industry. Slandering whole groups of people you don't know is an industry. Cursing people on the other side is an industry. And we feel pressure, don't we, to give in and do those things, to participate in them. Let me tell you, that is the kingdom of Xerxes. That is not the kingdom of God. We should let all that go. All of that, that's the pressure, the palace. And don't be, don't be so quick to say, well, that's, that, that's not me. Or to say, man, I would never, I would never do that. Because you know what? You know what? Under enough pressure, you just might. I might. We might. And how do I know this? Let me tell you. It's by looking at Esther. Because how is she doing so far in the palace under pressure? By all accounts, I think pretty poorly. Because Esther, I hope to show you this, by any measuring stick, has totally sold out here. She has come to the top of her culture arrived at her perch in the palace by doing whatever anyone has said she's had to do to get there. More specifically, she's done what any man and every man has told her to do. She does exactly what her uncle Mordecai tells her to do, exactly what the male eunuch tells her to do, and we or it's implied she does whatever the king has told her to do because she's pleased him so much he invites her back. She is a blank canvas so far on which every man she encounters writes. And in the very book that bears her name, you're supposed to see this, she doesn't even speak until the end of the fourth chapter. She is, by every stretch of the imagination here, she's, she's a doormat. Why? Because there's, not yet anyway, there is no Esther to Esther. No identity of her own. She can't see why she is where she is. And she completely capitulates to the pressure of the palace. And by the way, people from across the spectrum, you're like, man, this is getting dark. Well, all the people on the, both sides of the religious spectrum, they're offended by Esther. For example, on one hand, feminist perspectives are offended by her. They say, look at her, man. She does what every man tells her to do. She essentially sleeps her way to the top on the casting couch, right? The feminist perspective, they're not the only ones who have a problem with Esther because traditional Christian scholars do too, especially when you compare her with Daniel. He was another Bible character in exile in Persia. And years before this story, unlike Esther, who gives into the king in every way, Daniel stands up to the king. He refuses to give in. You say, well, well like Esther, she could have been killed if she would have refused. Yeah, Daniel could have too. And they did try to kill him. Only God rescued him because he trusted in God. I mean, listen, at least Vashti stands up to him. But Xerxes has no, excuse me, but Esther has no self to herself. She eats the ceremonially unclean food, we're told. She sleeps with a man who's not her husband. And she marries an unbeliever. According to Jewish law, she broken a whole bunch of commands. Now, how do you feel about Esther? <laughs> You're like, okay, all right, yeah, yeah, check, check, and check. She's guilty, but come on, Morgan. I mean, like, what could she have done? It's my point precisely. The pressure of the palace overwhelmed her, and it can overwhelm you, overwhelm me. Don't know if you've ever heard of this group called the Power Team. Anybody heard of the Power Team? Yeah, the Power Team. They were sort of this offshoot of mm, sort of strange, muscular Christian subculture. 
in the 90s, and they would go around breaking stuff and lifting more weight than you can lift, by the way, so they could get your attention and talk about Jesus. They were sort of goofy, but their message got out there, and one of their illustrations has stuck with me over the years. Here it is. These guys... They'd go on campus or on a stage. They would take a soda can and they would squeeze the can until it exploded everywhere. And the point of the illustration was, besides that, <laughs> I'm stronger than you are, was, to, was that the can held together until the pressure on the outside exceeded the pressure on the inside. And once the external pressure was greater, the can was crushed. And they compare that to the human soul. And it's true. Because in the same way that the pressure of the palace crushed Esther can crush us too. The pressure on the inside isn't greater. How can that happen? Why does that happen? Why do we get crushed? Here's why. Because when there's no you to you, the pressure on the outside always overcomes the pressure on the inside. When you don't know who you are, when you don't know that God loves you and has made you with a purpose and a plan for your life and has put you in this place for such a time as this, if you can't see that, all you feel is this moment, all you can see is this moment, this pressure, like Esther, the cave. So how can we overcome? How can we in the end triumph? By number three, here it is. I'm hopefully going to rescue us here. By remembering another person from another palace. Another person from another palace. Let me set it up by saying this. In a way, in a way, Esther, I want you to see this. Esther didn't embrace the wrong thing. She just embraced the wrong king. You hear that? She didn't embrace the wrong thing. She just embraced the wrong king. Every one of us wants to know that we're beautiful in a way, right? To know that we matter, that we're special. We want praise from the praiseworthy. I want that. You want that. Esther wanted it. And I want you to see, though, right here, even, even though she's embracing the wrong king, there's still something amazing going on. Because right here, even at this point in her story, yeah, Esther's not beautiful. She's not beautiful, not yet. She's beautiful on the outside, not on the inside. In the inside, she's a mess. And yet, what I want you to see is this, that God has her by the hand. And he has you by the hand today as well. God has grabbed hold of Esther's hand even in the middle of the palace. And guess what God's doing? He's being so patient with her. He's working on her. He's working his beauty treatments on her too. And by the time the book is done, we see she's transformed into her namesake. It's Hadassah. It means myrtle, like a myrtle tree. It was a sign of life and beauty. See, God here is loving her in spite of her flaws, which is the definition of grace, of grace. And as Esther, as we yield more and more to the grace of God, Esther's insides, our insides, can begin to match perhaps who we are on the outside. And listen, Esther, in the end, she becomes not only beautiful, but a force to be reckoned with in the palace. She overcomes the pressure. You say, well, I'd like for that to happen to me, all right, Morgan. I'd like for God to love me, change me like that. How? How can that happen? I want to tell you, it starts by remembering this, that once upon a time, in a true story, there was a beautiful prince 
who lived in another palace, but who came to earth and lost his beauty. There was nothing in his appearance that we should desire him when he came here, the prophet Isaiah wrote about him. And though this prince possessed the riches of heaven, though he lived in the ultimate center of power, he gave away his beauty. For our sakes, he became poor. He lost his status for those in the palace and out of the palace to cover their shame, to make them beautiful. There was someone who came to do all this, hear me, for you. And his name is Jesus. And when you remember that, that there's another person, another prince, a true prince from the ultimate palace who came to save, rescue, change, holds your hand, change you and holds your hand. That someone you think the world of, thinks the world of you, you can let all the pressure go. All the criticism go, the hatred go, the pressure to conform and to become, hear me, some kind of concubine to some earthly system you don't even want in the first place and you can begin to leverage like Esther does what you have for those who don't. Esther didn't embrace the wrong thing. She just embraced the wrong king. She was forced to give up her freedom for some earthly king. But hear me, Jesus is the king who gave up his freedom for you. Do you know him today? Do you want him today like that? I hope you do. hope you do. Final thought, like Esther, hear me, the church of Jesus has a mission no matter who's in the palace. Leaders come and go, but the word of God, the mission of the church to reconcile all things back to Christ and to make disciples, that lasts. And if we'll remember, we got a greater king from a greater palace who loves us, that love fills us, we can remain true and faithful in the end. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.